0: First Samuel chapter 17, please. First Samuel 17, continuing today in our discussions into the life of David. you've been reading in verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines, named Goliath, from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels and a shield bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants. And serve us, and the Philistines said, "I defy the armies of Israel this day; Give me a man that we may fight together." When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Jump down to verse number twenty. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies, in the hand of the supply keeper ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the man who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spake to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing, and these people answered him as the first ones did. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul And he sent for him. Then David came to Saul. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand. And he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David. And the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was only a youth, ruddy and good looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses the of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So it was, and the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone's stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistines, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they dead. Father God, thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful story. Lord, we just praise you for examples like this in the word. I pray today for the filling of your spirit. Lord, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I pray for your Spirit today. I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Let there be no distraction. Let us concentrate on the message that you have for us today. Uh, May I be filled to speak. May we all be filled to hear. And Lord God, I pray that we would learn some lessons from David today. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to speak to you this morning on In the Valley with the Giant in the valley with the giant. Recently, we talked about this very passage of scripture on Wednesday night during prayer meeting, and I told a little story, so those of you who were uh, part of prayer meeting will have already heard this story, but uh, that's okay, I want to tell it again. You see, on one of our trips to Israel, uh, you know, you're trotting, you're going around in a nice, cushy, air-conditioned bus, and you're going from place to place, and they take you out, and they show you various things, and, and you get back in. One of the places that we stopped, we, we pulled up to this field, and... Uh, not this last time, but a couple of times before. We pull up to this field, and the guide said, everybody out. We all got out, and he took us out into this field, and we stood by this little dry stream bed. And he said, this is where David fought Goliath. And, of course, everybody immediately whipped out their cameras, and they started oohing and awing, and they started taking pictures all around them. Everybody collected little stones out of the dry stream bed, and we all headed back to the bus. As we were heading back to the bus, I asked the guide. I said, just, I'm curious, exactly how do you know that this was the place where David fought Goliath? And he said, I don't know. As a matter of fact, we have no idea. But it was probably a field just like this. (laughs) And you know, the fact is, when you go over there, that's the way sometimes it is. You don't always know exactly where certain things were. Some things they're absolutely sure of. and Some are representative. That was one of those cases where it was something that was representative. But here's something we do know. We know that a young man named David, armed with only a sling and a stone, destroyed a giant of a man by the name of Goliath. In the power of God. We do know that. Do you believe that? We believe that because the Bible says it and the Bible says it and it is a historical fact. Do you believe it? What about this man Goliath himself? Could such a man as Goliath have ever lived? A man who was nearly 10 feet tall. Now these Christmas trees on either side of me here, the tall ones, I think are nine foot tall trees. So in your mind right now, I'd like for you to just draw a little line from those two trees across each other, above my head. You got that little line there? And then I want you to put Goliath's head on top of it, because he was ten feet tall. And I want you to imagine me going up against something of that size. Maybe David was bigger than me, I don't know. But that gives you some idea of how big this man, could such a man have existed? His head would have been up there, somewhere on the cross. Could such a man have existed? According to the Bible here, he had a he had armor that weighed 150 pounds. According to the Bible, he had a spearhead. Just the head of his spear alone weighed 15 pounds. Is it believable that such a man could have existed? Some folks will go and say that there is a supernatural explanation for Goliath. If you study it out, you'll find that there are some who believe that he is a result of... Uh, If you if you accept the supernatural explanation for Genesis chapter 6, some would say that he was a product of the union of the fallen angels and human women. Back there in Genesis chapter 6, I'll let you read that on your own. But I don't think that's the case. I don't think that there's any reason that we need to have a supernatural explanation for Goliath. I think Goliath was just a big man. And there's certainly ample evidence that such big people do exist from time to time. I did just a quick search on the internet, and of course you know everything on the internet must be true. I did just, uh, just a quick search and I found the top ten list of modern day giants, and I, as far as I know, I believe this is accurate. Let me just share, it, share, share them with you. There was a fellow by the name of Bernard Coyne who lived in Iowa. He died in 1921. He was eight feet four inches tall. There was nothing supernatural about Bernie. There was a fellow by the name of Vano Millerian. Something like that. He was born in Finland in 1909. In, at one point, he was officially the world's tallest man. He is considered to be the tallest soldier in history, if we ignore Goliath, as uh, he, he served in the Finnish army. He died in 1963, and he had reached an official height of 8 foot 3 inches tall. Edouard Beaupre was born in 1881. He was a circus strongman, and he was a star in Barnum and Bailey's Circus. He was the eldest of 20 children and was born in Canada. While he was of normal height during his first few years of life, by the age of nine, he was six feet tall, and his death certificate showed him as being eight foot three and still growing. As a strong man, his featured stunt was crouching down and lifting a horse to his shoulders. He reportedly lifted horses as heavy as 900 pounds. So not only huge, but strong. Ella Ewing was born in Missouri in 1872. She is known as the Missouri Giant. She grew normally until the age of seven, at which time she began to grow rapidly, reaching her maximum height of eight foot four. Al Tomaini was a giant who claimed a height of eight foot four. He weighed 356 pounds. He wore size 27 shoes. Leonid Stadnik was born in 1971 in the Ukraine and is still alive. He is a registered veterinary surgeon and lives with his mother. He is currently the world's tallest human, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. According to Pravda, his health is slowly failing now. But uh, an article in in, in Wikipedia lists his current height as 8 foot 5 inches. John Carroll was born in 1932 in Buffalo, New York. He was known as the Buffalo Giant. He grew at a very rapid rate. He died in 1969, and while his height was not recorded at the time... It is believed that he was very close to nine feet. John Rogan was born in 1868. He grew normally until the age of 13. His height was not officially recorded until his death, at which point he was eight foot, nine inches tall. Johan Aeson was born in America the year that his mother moved there from Norway. According to his death certificate from Mendocino State Hospital, at the time of death, he was nine foot, two inches tall. If this is true, he's the tallest recorded human he is buried in Montana. And of course, the one we've all seen, Robert Wadlow, is the tallest man in history whose height is verified by indisputable evidence. He's often referred to as the Alton Giant because he came from Alton, Illinois. At the time of his death, he weighed 440 pounds. He showed no sign of stopping growing. He was born in 1918, the oldest of five children, and he died at the age of 22. His coffin weighed half a ton and required 12 pallbearers to carry. You can see a statue of him if you go to Buffalo. Buffalo? No, Niagara Falls. And go to the Guinness Book of World Records place up there. They have a likeness of him. They have a chair there that he used to sit in, which is insane. It's insane. So I don't think we need to ascribe the size of Goliath to any supernatural means. Uh, There's all kinds of evidence that this happens. And so I think he was just a giant of a man. He was a huge Person, But whether or not it was supernatural or not, he was formidable. He was horrendous. He was terrifying. And David was willing to go toe-to-toe with him when everybody else ran the other way. I want to share three lessons that I think we can learn today from David in the Valley with the Giant. You can probably think of a lot more, but let's just limit it to three. Number one, in the Valley with the Giant, David needed courage. He needed courage. One characteristic of David that shines forth here, does it not, is courage. Not once do we see any hesitation. Did you notice that? Not even a a momentary hesitation. No fear, no nervousness, no trepidation from this young man. And I find that amazing, especially in light of the fact that he is surrounded by an entire army who is quaking and trembling with fear. Where were all the mighty men in Israel to answer the challenge? Of Goliath. Where for example was Saul. Who according to 1 Samuel chapter 9. and Verse number 2 stood head and shoulders. Above all the rest of Israel. He himself was the, the most impressive. Specimen of manhood. They could find And Where was he? Where was Jonathan. His son. Who just a little bit prior to this. Assisted only by his armor bearer. Had himself slain 20 Philistines. Where was brave Jonathan? Where was Abner? The captain of the host the valiant man who led the armies and, and was so known for his very... Where were all these guys? They were nowhere to be seen. Arthur Pink points out that cowardice is one of the consequences of lost communion with God. Proverbs twenty eight one says, The righteous are bold as a lion, and like leader, like people. When the spirit had left Saul, it had turned him into a coward. His courage left with it, and with his courage went the courage of the people. And out of the entire army of Israel, only one man showed any courage, and it was David. And in the valley with the giant, he needed it. David needed courage for a couple of reasons. He needed courage in order to face ridicule. Look at verse number 28. Verse number 28. Now Eliah, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the influence of your heart. You have come down to see the battle. The minute brave David decided to take a stand for God, he found himself ridiculed by others. And ridiculed even by his own brother. (laughs) You know, as we observe Eliab's cowardice here, and his own lack of bravery. Maybe we get just a little bit of glimpse into why. When God sent Samuel to the house of Jesse. And he started going down through the list of the brothers. He passed by Eliab. As a matter of fact it's interesting. That the three brothers who are named in that passage. Are also three that are here. And not a one of them had the nerve to stand up to Goliath. Only David. Jesus said out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And certainly now I think we see what was in Eliab's heart It came out in his words and his behavior. David found himself not only facing Goliath, but the ridicule of his shirking brother, Elias. Verses 28 through 33 are a reminder that when we try to be God-centered, and that's what David was, when we try to, to put God first in our lives, and when we try to take a stand for God, we're going to be ridiculed. And there are going to be those who are going to be in opposition. The Apostle Paul was an example of that. He stood before Festus one day, and Festus said to him, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Acts chapter 26, verse 24. Paul, you're nuts. You're out of your mind. Ridiculed him. And it wasn't just Festus who so ridiculed the Apostle. If we read Corinthians, we find out that even his beloved Corinthian church, some of them thought he was cuckoo. And so ridiculed Pink said, the man of God must be prepared to be misinterpreted and to stand alone. So David needed courage to face ridicule. David needed courage to face discouragement. Discouragement. The first thing he experienced after volunteering for this monumental task was discouragement. Saul tried to discourage him. Saul tried to discourage him, first of all, by pointing out his inexperience. Look at verse number 33. Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You are a youth. And he a man of war from his youth. You can't do this. You're not prepared for this. He tried to discourage him. And it's true, Christian, when you try to take a stand for God, there are going to be some who are going to try to discourage you. There are going to be some who are going to tell you that you're not equal to the task. Saul tried to discourage David by disdaining his equipment. Verses 38 through 40, we see the almost hilarious picture of Saul taking his armor and putting it on David. It wasn't doing Saul any good, so I guess he figured he'd let David use it. But it was no good for David as well. But what Saul was saying to David was, you know, you don't have what it takes. you gotta, you got to have some more equipping here. You're not ready, you're not armed, you're not capable. And as Christians, when we decide to take a stand for God we're also going to hear others whispering that we don't have the gifts. We don't have the ability. David needed courage to face discouragement. But primarily, David needed courage to face the battle. You know, talk is cheap. Many of us would be able to stand up and show some courage against ridicule. We might be able to handle that. And many of us might be able to stand up and and, and handle the discouragement and, and fight that down. But it's when the battle starts. The men are separated from the boys. And David, a boy in stature, was an absolute man in heart. He had seen Goliath across that field. He was not offering to fight someone he had not seen. He had seen him. And yet he had the courage to take the battle to him. He had the courage to run right toward him. In the valley with the giant, David needed courage. And so for you... And so for me, when we're in a valley with one of our giants, we also need courage. And we need to pray for that. Another thing I think I see here is that in the valley with the giant, David needed clarity. Clarity. There's a movie, Gettysburg, I've quoted from it several times lately. You can tell I must have watched it recently. But uh, there's a scene in that particular movie where General Buford of the Union Army is... Setting up his troops and preparing to meet the enemy. And he's charging them to get ready. And one of the things he said to them as they are preparing is, keep a clear eye. Keep a clear eye. And few men have ever seen things more clearly than David did here. Look at verse number 26. Verse number 26. David spoke to the man who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That verse is a wonderful reminder about how important it is to have clarity. You see, regardless of how anybody else viewed this conflict, David understood the issues. He understood it was a direct challenge against the people of God, and therefore against God himself. You see, that's a theme that we see all throughout the Bible. The great heroes of the Bible, they were all God-centered people. They all understood that the issue is God and God alone. This battle was not about Israel versus the Philistines. This battle was not about the big man versus the underdog. This battle was not even about a giant named Goliath against a young man named David. It was about God. It was about the glory of God. It was about the name. Of God. Notice how clearly David expressed it in verses 45 through 47, which may be the best, most important part of this entire story. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you, and this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. It's not the armies of Israel that you have defied, Goliath. but rather the God of the armies of Israel. This battle is not about you and me, Goliath. But it is so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And when this battle is over, Goliath, all the assembly shall know the Lord does not save with sword and spear. The battle is the Lord's. Throughout our study of the life of David, we're going to see a phrase used over and over and over to describe him. He was the man after God's own heart. In 1 Samuel 13 and verse number 4, we saw in verse number 14, we saw that the Lord had sought just such a man, a man after God's own heart it would be a description that would follow him and it still does today when we think of David we think of the man after God's own heart I think I have a book on my shelf at home that that's the title of it about David what makes such a man why would David have been called the man after God's own heart one man said the man after God's own heart is the one who is out and out for him for God putting his honor and glory before all other considerations And David was the man after God's own heart because when he was in the valley with the giant, he had the clarity to see this battle was about God and God alone. One last thought. In the valley with the giant, David needed God to fight for him. He needed God to fight for him. You know we love to cheer the little guy, don't we? When he whoops up on the big guy. We kind of like that.
1: In our earlier lives, we
0: used to have great Danes. We had one great great Dane by the name of Pharaoh. We had another great Dane whose name was Maximilian von Meisteringer. We called him Max for short. I didn't name that dog. Both were good dogs. But unfortunately one day Max took a mean turn and we decided we needed to get rid of Max. And so we, we gave him away to a fellow who had a bunch of property. And I remember the day that we took Max to deliver him to this person. And, and he wanted he wanted us to take him and... And give it a try because he had another dog and he wanted to make sure that these two dogs would get along. Now our great Dane was monstrous. He could, he was the biggest of the two. He could put his feet on my shoulders here and his head was Goliath-like above mine. He was a big dog. And uh, this other guy had a Chihuahua or something <laughs> like that. It was, it was about that size. And I'll never forget when I took that dog. Watching as this fellow was holding that great day. Tried to hold on to that great day. And that chihuahua was just barking and yapping and carrying on. And in that great day's face like he was going to tear him up. I don't care how big you are. And I, I, was, I was admiring the little guy. I have to admit, you can't help admiring when a little guy stands up to a big guy. We have a pond at our property that we put in a few years back. And every spring I find myself fighting a continuous battle against one of God's more interesting creations. The Canadian goose. And, and I, I say interesting, but they really are fascinating animals. There's so many lessons we can learn from the Canadian geese, but nonetheless, I don't want them in my yard. They can do a terrible thing to a yard. They have <laughs> do terrible things to my yard. And so every spring I'm out there, and I fight this battle, trying to get them out of there before they get nested, because once they're nested, you can't get them out. In one year I had failed. And I was mowing my lawn, and there was a big family of geese out there around the pond. Well, if you've ever watched what they do when they have little ones, what are they called, goslings, when they have them, uh, Daddy Goose stands guard, and the rest of them are messing around. So I was mowing on my tractor, pretty good-sized tractor. I was mowing my lawn, and as I was approaching this family of geese, I thought, well, they'll turn and run like they always do. But in this particular case, Daddy Goose didn't turn and run. He attacked my tractor. <laughs> and, you know, I, I wasn't the slightest concerned. With this, like Goose did this But I had to admire him. Don't you admire when the little guy attacks the big guy? And especially when he wins. But you know, the fact of life, or the fact is in real life, it seldom happens that way. In real life, the little guy usually gets creamed. And the fact is, even here, if puny little David had stood alone against Goliath, armed only with a slingshot, he would have been a puddle of goo. There would have been very little left of him. His courage might have been impressive, but it would not have matched the armor of Goliath. His clarity of mind and heart might have served him well, but it would not have been enough. He needed more. He needed far more. And the fact is he had far more than just a little slingshot. You see, Saul saw David standing there dressed as a shepherd, and probably so did everybody else. They saw him dressed as a shepherd, no weaponry in his hands, a little bag on his side with a few stones in it, and a sling shot. And they thought of him inadequately armed, and they tried to pile armor on top of him. But the fact is, he already had armor. He had the same armor that earlier in his life had protected him from a lion. He had the same armor that earlier in his life had protected him from a bear, and enabled him to defeat them. He had the same armor that we as Christians have. According to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 10 where we read finally my brethren be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. That was the armor that protected David. He didn't need Saul's weapons because his were vastly superior. As one man said, the man of faith has no use for carnal weapons. David reminds us here, does he not, that one Christian armed only with faith in God is invincible. Invincible. David could say with confidence, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He could say, God will fight for me. He could say with complete assurance, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Verse 46. Because God will fight for me. He could calmly look up into the eyes of Goliath, who was looming over him, and believe the battle already won. Because the battle is the Lord's. He will fight for me. I read an interesting comment in one of the commentaries as I was preparing this message. Oftentimes we seem to think that when that stone flew out of that slingshot and smacked goliath in the head that it just thumped him in the head it just rang his bell and he fell down but this particular commentator says he, th- he thinks we've completely lost the mark on that he goes all the way back to verse number five where he describes the armament and the protective gear that goliath had and he talked about the fact he had an el- a helmet of bronze and this person talks about the fact that helmets protected the head This person talks about the fact that the helmet came all the way down across the forehead. It wouldn't do any good to have a helmet that left the forehead exposed. And I got to thinking about that and I thought, well, he's right. And so his thought was, you know, that stone had to go right through that helmet to go into his forehead, as the Bible says it did. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if it's true. But I do this. I know this. A slingshot in the hand of a child of God is mightier than any weapon of evil. It's mightier than than anything the devil can throw in its path. It's invincible. Warren Wearsby said all of us face giants of one kind or another. But we may overcome them through the power of God. The Apostle Paul said what shall we say to these things. If God is for us. Who can be against us. And so I asked this morning. Christian. Our enemy is staring down a giant this morning. Do any find themselves struggling under difficulties, trials in this life? Do you wonder if you have what it takes to get through the trial? David would say to us this morning, if you're a child of the king, if you're born again, if you're a believer, if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no mistake, that's all we're talking about here. If you're not a believer, these things don't apply to you. But if you are, then my Bible tells me there is no mountain too high. For our God to get us over there is no valley too deep for our God to get us across David one day would write Psalm 23 and he would say "Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil I oftentimes wonder was it in the valley with the giant that that thought came to you there are no seas too rough when you're in the boat with Jesus there is no army too powerful to defeat our God and as David proved as he ran toward that giant and reached into that bag and pulled out one smooth stone and buried it in the forehead of Goliath, there is no giant too tall or too strong for our God. Verse 47 has a phrase that sums up the whole thing. The battle is the Lord's. And so let us remember, whatever battle we might face, no matter how fierce, it's the Lord's. Whatever giants we might face, no matter how towering, they are not too big. For our God. One Christian. Armed only with faith in God. Is invincible.